All right, guys. We are done with church history. Now we get the history of Israel. Let's open the Lord of Prayer. Lord, we love you. We love you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for our time together tonight. Pray for the, the overview of, uh, of the history of Israel, of your chosen people, this chosen nation, uh, that right now is under siege and hated seemingly by everyone all over the globe. And no one really knows why. I pray that you would uh, enlighten us and uh, fulfill us uh, in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the history of Israel, I don't know how long my, my session will be. It could be short. Um, depends on how long I take, how many questions you ask. But if you would, let me plow through this. Hold your questions to the end as best you can. Um, and then I'd be happy to hit those at the end. But I will probably answer them. It, this is a huge rush through on the history of Israel up to A.D. 135. Uh, like I said, we'll do this in three parts. We'll come up to A.D. 135 to 1948. And then we'll do 1948 to the present. We'll do it in the future. So before Israel ever was... You've got the creation of the world out of nothing, and it's dated from the Bible around 4,000 B.C. We looked at this date uh, a couple of weeks ago in church history, just looking at the ages of the people that lived and the numbers given to us. It's pretty easily dated back to around 4,000 B.C. when God created or began to create on the earth. Uh, we've got Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, so uh, we'll get certain individuals up to the time of Israel versus Israel when we get a nation. We'll get individuals and a nation. Uh, we see Adam and Eve, our first parents, or the first people on the earth, become our parents. Uh, they're two lovely sons, one good, one not so good, um, who began to populate the earth. By Genesis chapter 6, we see Noah, who was uh, quite righteous, apparently the only righteous one on the earth. A worldwide flood that flooded the earth in those days. You think six chapters into Genesis, boy, it's not going to take long. I mean, God's just that just happened five chapters ago, but that's a couple thousand years at this point. Um, by the time the worldwide flood hits, or about 1,500 years. So th the world has already gone bad after Cain's murder of his brother. Uh, murder has become quite commonplace up to the flood. Uh, after the flood, there's a new beginning with three boys, the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now today, you hear uh, people say they're anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic, the Semitic peoples. That's where they come from. They come from Shem. We could just as easily call them Shemitic. Uh, sh and sa are the same letter in Hebrew. It just depends on where you put the dot. You put it on the front of the W or the back of the W. Sh, sa, same letter in Hebrew. So Semites, Shemites, but that's where the Semitic peoples descend from. And that's from Shem, who, although he's listed first in, the, in uh, um, Noah and his wife's uh, children, uh, they're also listed together. And it said that it was in the 500th year of Noah that he had his sons. So they might be triplets. Didn't say 500, 501, or 502nd year. Maybe they were triplets. We don't know. It's neither here nor there. But all of humanity descended from these three men. Uh, they, these migrated all over the earth. And as I said, all humanity descends from one or a combination of, of them because they interbred. Some struggled, however, to disperse. But God forced the issue after the Tower of Babel. Uh, some wanted to stay and put their, make a name for themselves. So you see very early on in, the, in the, the narratives of the Bible that people start trying to think for themselves. And that's okay as long as it's in accordance with what God has commanded. He commanded y'all go out. He didn't say y'all. Texas wasn't here yet. But uh, he said, you guys, you guys, uh, go spread out. And some said, no, we want to stay right here. We want to build a big tower and make a name for ourselves. And God confused their language. So in the confusion of language, this was a judgment to confuse the languages. 
Today, when we have confusing languages in churches, uh, it's just the opposite. People think that's the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just confusion. It remains confusion. Shem's descendants, we see from Genesis 11, uh, all the way to Abram, who, as you know, was later changed to Abraham, and his wife, Sarai. So we see in Genesis 11, the descendants of Shem and how they spread out. Um, We find Abram and his wife, Sarai, living in the place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 11. And here's a a colorful map. You'll see, uh, let me get my glasses on, Uh, the red are the descendants of Japheth. The yellow are the descendants of Shem, and the green are the descendants of Ham. Uh, and this is typically where they spread out. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us. It tells us where they spread and some of the, the locations of where they spread. So uh, here you are, right in the middle of that map, you see the, the red square. That's the center of the world at this point. That is the land of Israel, the promised land. Nothing about Israel yet. Uh, in the Bible narratives up to Genesis chapter 11 at this point, uh, the nations have spread out. In the life of Abram, who became Abraham, God called Abram around 2100 B.C. out of idolatry. He was worshiping idols. We read about that in uh, the book of Joshua into Ur, which is in the land of Canaan. Back there, there it is. Uh, Ur would be down there in the Persian Gulf over to your right. See where Shem is? Just move over there. There's the Persian Gulf. Ur is right in that area. Right above that, modern-day Kuwait, roundabout. Uh, and uh, God calls him out of that, you would see that he would need to move up from the the Tigris-Euphrates River and and move up instead of going across the desert to get into Canaan. So he would have gone up. At the very top there where the the yellow meets the the red is Haran, and that's where uh, Abram made his way uh, up to the top where God spoke to him again in Haran, H-A-R-A-N, till he made his way down into Canaan. But in his life, God called him out of Uh, idolatry, and into the land of Canaan, which is modern Palestine. Abram became Abraham, which means uh, exalted father to father of many. And since his wife Sarai, later Sarah, was barren, he had a child through Hagar, who was an Egyptian woman that he acquired in Egypt. Now, the way they acquired Hagar was uh, through a very sinful, I would not say very sinful. Is is there a very sinful and sinful? Is there a difference? Um, In Genesis chapter 12, God has put Abram in the land. Go down to the land, I'll show you. And he does. He goes into the land of Canaan. But the famine comes into the land. God doesn't tell him to leave, but he leaves anyway and goes down to Egypt. He gets wealthy down there. And when he comes out, he has a handmaiden named Hagar. And since Sarai could not have babies, she said, look, uh, here's my handmaid, uh, Hagar, impregnate her, have babies through her, they'll be mine. Abraham said, okay. Apparently, I'm doubting there was a big argument on that one, but there should have been. Their son that they had was named Ishmael, and he became the father of the Arab peoples. Uh, Here's the prophecy to the Arab peoples in Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord said to Hagar, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you, shall, you will bear a son, and you will name him Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Note this. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of his brothers. Well, this is Saudi Arabia. This is where Ishmael's descendants, so where Ishmael went. Uh, he had 12 tribes. This is where they grew up in Arabia, east of his brothers, which would be Isaac, the rest of the Israelites, 
uh, they are east there. They are still the wild donkey of men, which is a nice way of putting it, instead of the other way you call a donkey. They are difficult for Israel, to say the least. These are the progenitors of Hamas. These are the progenitors of the, the religion of Islam. These are the thorn in Israel's side. How did they come about? Abraham slept with Hagar. When he went down to Egypt, shouldn't have been down there in the first place because God never told him to leave the promised land. <clears throat> Later, Sarah had a son named Isaac, 13 years after Ishmael was born. Uh, she had him miraculously because she's 90 years old. And God designated this as the son of promise. Remember, he told Abraham, you're going to have a land seed and a blessing. And the seed that comes through you, Abraham apparently thought, well, it will be through Hagar. Well, when he had the son Ishmael, he loved Ishmael. But God said, that's not the son. That's not the one. Abraham began to, to get uh, older and wonder, who's going to be my son and who's going to bear me a son? And God said, Sarah's going to. Wait, what? How can that happen? And yet that's exactly what happened. God designated the son that came through, through Sarah in her old age, named Isaac, which means laughter. This is because it made Sarah laugh when she heard the, the angel or God himself speaking to them outside the tent. She's in there. I mean, how would, wouldn't you ladies? I, no one in here is 90, but let's just say you're 50, 60. <laughs> And someone says, you're going to, to have a baby. That's funny. I don't know why she denied it. You remember that the, the angel or God is actually talking to Abram. And he said, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah, she, he goes to Sarah in uh, Genesis 18. Why would you laugh? And she denies it. I mean, her answer should have been, well, wouldn't you? Look at me. But God is going to fulfill his promise through Sarah. Isaac is born. And when he marries Rebekah, they have twins. Esau and Jacob, Jacob being designated as he who would carry the promises of Abraham. So God's promise went to Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac, the promise from Isaac, went to Jacob, not Esau. God is choosing his line. He had 12 sons. I won't make you name them. I'll put them up here for you. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, and Naphtali. And you're thinking, I know the rest. No, you don't. Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, <clears throat> Joseph, and Benjamin. These are the 12 sons of Jacob. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. Abraham had gone into Canaan around 2100 BC. The land, I capitalized the land because it's the promised land that God had promised him and his descendants. Yet the Canaanites rule there at the time. And Abraham lived as an alien among them. Isaac lived in Canaan while Ishmael lived east of his brother in Arabia, which we just saw. And Jacob was later, later renamed Israel. One who wrestles with God. So his sons, those 12 boys, became the progenitors of the tribes of Israel. Uh, ten of them, jealous of the 11th one, Joseph, sold him into slavery. He later ended up in Egypt, second in command of the Pharaoh. One of the greatest stories in the Bible at the end of the book of Genesis. After Jacob discovered Joseph was still alive, his favorite and 11th born son, Israel moved to Egypt where they remained for 430 years. The people, not Jacob. Jacob died soon thereafter. Exodus 12.40 says that when they left Egypt, in the Exodus, they left 430 years to the day. When they came down there, it was 1876 B.C. They left in 1446 B.C. How? Moses. Moses of the tribe of Levi, having grown up in Egypt, in that captivity down in Egypt, was Israel's first deliverer. He led Israel out in 1446 B.C. Seemed like a great day, and it was. Israel, however, wandered in the desert of Sinai for 40 years due to that generation's hard-heartedness towards God. 
they didn't like the situation. They didn't like the desert. They didn't like walking. They didn't like the bread God gave them from heaven. And so God said, and when they finally were sent to spy out the land, actually they weren't even told to spy out the land. It's just that Moses sent 12 spies in the land. Go check it out. Come back. Tell us about it. Well, that just gave them an opportunity to go find reasons to gripe. God hates grumbling. Why would God hate grumbling? <laughs> lack of satisfaction, lack of trust. We don't like what you're doing, God. God hates that. It's a terrible sin. How many people just got their toes stepped on by that one? But that's what they did. And God said, I'm done with you. I'm going to wait till you all die out. I'm going to take the next generation in if you don't like it. After 40 years, which brings us to 1406 BC, Israel entered Canaan again. This time they were led by Joshua, conquering the land after seven years. We know it took seven years based upon what, what Caleb himself said in Joshua chapter 14, verses 7 and 10. He's talking about his age and talking about how long. So it looks like it took about seven years. So that by the time they are in the promised land, it's 1399 BC, based upon the numbers were given in the Bible. Now they're in the land. God's people in God's land. Who was there? The Canaanites. God didn't want the Canaanites there. This is an evil people. If it's God's land, and he sent Joshua in to expunge those people, to kill them all, people today go, well, how can you believe in a God like that? Because that's the God we have. It's the only God there is. Which other God are you going to choose? Um, they were under God's judgment. Imagine if Hamas were the Canaanites. Anybody got a problem with someone going in and annihilating them? Imagine if it's Hamas in one section, ISIS in another section, and the Taliban in another section. Anyone got a problem with people going in and annihilating these idiots? No. That's what the Canaanites were, except worse. God sent his general in. His name means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh delivers. Joshua, go in, take those people out, and put my people in. God have the right to do that? And he did. After Joshua died, various judges ruled over this land of Israel and the people until 1010 B.C. when the prophet Samuel, or the last judge of Israel, Samuel himself, anointed Saul as their first king. And so we see this, what's going on in the land. When Abraham got there, there were Canaanites everywhere. Uh, a couple of generations later, Moses and Joshua go in, and now God's people are there. That's the land. They're not Arabs. Arabs are living east in Arabia. God's people in God's land, as he promised they would through the line of Isaac. And so you see here the color-codedness of the tribes. Once they went in, each tribe took a, a section of land. You see those three on the far right. You've got Reuben, Gad, and a half-tribe part of Manasseh. When they were on that part, that side of the Jordan, as they came into the land on that area, uh, those three tribes said, hey, we'd like to stay here. We like the land here. Joshua said, fine, but go in, help us annihilate the Canaanites, and then come back. And they did. And the rest of the tribes took those lands. That is the land of Israel that God gave them. Right south of that is Moab and Edom, and these are cousins of Israel. God said, you cannot have their land. They have their own land. And so they had just the part that God had told them they would have. And now they're going to live happily ever after. They could have. They could have. God told them under Moses, if you will obey me, you can stay in that land. If you disobey me, I will expunge you from the land. So after uh, Samuel anoints the first king over Israel, because Israel de uh, demands a king, he gives them Saul. King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, he ruled over all of Israel from 1050 B.C. to 1010 B.C. 40 years, we know it's 40 years, because the Apostle Paul says it is in Acts 13, 21. Jews today, since they do not accept the New Testament as holy writ, 
uh, have no idea how long King Saul reigned and will not put a date on it uh, because there's nothing in the Old Testament that says he reigned 40 years. Now you'll say, wait a minute, what about 1 Samuel 13, 1? It says it there, but it doesn't. Uh, it's in italics and it's not part of the Hebrew text and so no one really knows. But the Apostle Paul, being a rabbi from the tribe of Benjamin himself, tells us it was 40 years. King David followed he was of the tribe of Judah. He ruled over Israel from 1010 B.C., which is right after Saul died, to 970 B.C. We see that in 2 Sam 5 and 1 Kings 2, where it says he reigned for 40 years. And he made Jerusalem capital city. Uh, the capital city of Jerusalem was controlled by what was left of those Canaanite tribes named the Jebusites. No one could kick them out, so everyone kind of hovered around them. David went into their water duct, came in, took them without a fight. Boom, done. You can go into that place now and walk through that tunnel. Today, if you go to Israel, King Solomon, the son of David, ruled over Israel from 970 B.C. to 930 B.C. Um, again, another 40 years. And he is the one that built the first temple of the Jews in Jerusalem. So by the time they've, they've come out of Egypt or they go into Egypt and I'm sorry, come out of Egypt in 1446 B.C. They go into the promised land in 1406 B.C. Uh, they take the land by 1399 B.C. And they've got three rulers, uh, including the judges prior to them. And now we're at 930 B.C., and the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel is, belongs to the Jews, and it's ruled by their kings, their people. After Solomon finished with a, we won't say finished with a bang, he finished terribly. He brought uh, idolatry into Israel, and there was a split in the kingdom. And so it divides, and you'll see there in the south, uh, Israel becomes just a nation of itself in the north, and Judah is in the south. Now in Judah is where the capital city of Jerusalem is. And the only way a Jew can worship is to go to Jerusalem. The only way someone's sins can be forgiven is to go to Jerusalem, offer a sacrifice in Jerusalem to a priest who will mediate from the tribe of Levi. There is no other way, according to God. So the only way the people of Israel in the north could, could come down and have their sins forgiven is to come down into Jerusalem. Well, Solomon led Israel into idolatry, and two kings emerged. The son of Solomon named Rehoboam, and another general of Solomon's named um, Jeroboam, and he was the son of Nebat, wicked, evil king. Rehoboam wasn't too good either. Israel became the kingdom of the north. Judah became the kingdom of the south. So when you get into to, uh, the study of kings, uh, after 1 Kings 10, 11, all the way into 2 Kings, you see over and over, the, you'll see a king in Israel and a king in Judah. King in Israel, king in Judah. And if you know they split, it makes sense to you. If you don't know they split, why are you doing this? Why are this? Who are these kings? They all, and sometimes they've got the same name in the north and in the south. And it's confusing. It can be. During this time, the prophets of Israel, uh, of the, during the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, the Old Testament prophets regularly reminded people of his covenant with them. Prophets in the Old Testament are preachers. Uh, they're hellfire brimstone preachers. They're sent by God to go in and tell people. They're not real encouraging people. No one's inviting the, 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 the prophet over for Sunday dinner. Uh, you don't want the prophet in your home. You, the last person you want milling around your house is a prophet in Israel. Um, unless you are completely squeaky clean. God sends these men to go in and clean house. Tell them, you are in error, you need to repent of your ways, and God will restore you. People didn't like them, and they, they weren't, uh, they, like I said, they weren't popular people. Living in the promised land entailed being obedient to God's law, and God took that very seriously. He tells them very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 to 15, here's what happens if you obey me. Great and wonderful things, blessings. 
But disobeying God's law entailed incurring the curse of God on the people in the land and ultimately being expunged from the land. And yet God is slow to anger. He said this in the law. In 1446 B.C. when God gave it to Moses in the law, God was so slow about implementing this. He keeps sending prophets. Remind them. Remind them. Tell them to repent. Bring them back. If they repent, I'll bring them back. I had a couple guys in the office the other day. They were asking me. They said, is there um, a way in which God can change his mind? And I said, yeah. If you go look at Jeremiah chapter 18. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 18, God tells the prophet Jeremiah, look, tell the people that if I decree judgment on people and they repent, I will change my mind about what I had uh, planned for them. If they are living well and then they turn around, they turn from their their right ways, I will change my mind about them and judge them. God does change. It doesn't mean that God himself changes. You obey God, God blesses. Disobey He curses. And that's what these prophets of Israel were sent to do during the time of all the kings. When you go through a list of the northern kings, they were all evil. There wasn't a single good one. In fact, there was a single good one, but he died before he ever really reigned. The prophet says there was some good in him, but uh, he was the son of a king and and died early. Jeroboam I, who was the general in Solomon's army, in order to keep people out of Jerusalem, he established shrines in the northern territories so that the ten tribes who went with him would not travel back to Jerusalem where they might remain. Be like somebody coming out of here and saying, we're going to plant another church, and we're going to go way out of the way, way, you know, 20 miles up the road where other people, so they never have to pass Harvest Bible Church, because if they do, they might stop off and see their friends and and remember that they like it and not come back to, to our new church. That's what he's doing. He said, we're going to set up, we're going to make a whole new system of worship. We're going to put a shrine here, a shrine there. You don't ever have to go back to Jerusalem. People bought it. He set up a golden calf for them to worship in in the territory of Dan and at Bethel. The northern kingdom endured under various dynasties until 722 B.C. when the Assyrians took their land and interbred with them. Of course, you know they later became known as the Samaritans and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim and not Mount Zion where they were supposed to. So this is, uh, they go, they split in 930 B.C. under uh, Jeroboam I, son of Nebat. And they last until 722 B.C. under the Assyrians. Assyrians take them out of the land, interbreed, and now you've messed up the line in Israel, or so they thought. Here's the Assyrian Empire. Uh, just, uh, you can see Assyria there in the red. Um, this is just some of their, their travels back and forth around the area. They were a dominating world empire. They are not to be confused with the Syrian or Aramaic Empire. These are the Assyrians. In the south, Judah. Judah endured until 586 B.C., although by 605 B.C., they had become a vassal to Babylon. So the Assyrians have lost power. The Babylonians are now in power. And so Israel is just this tiny nation. And they're not real. I say Israel. Judah is what's left. Israel's gone. Um, Judah's what's left, and they're not as powerful as they once were. Their kings are sometimes good, sometimes not so good, sometimes downright evil. And so Assyria has been swallowed up by Babylon, and now Babylon has made their way into Jerusalem and stolen some of the children. Daniel, we know, was one of those. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken from their homes in 605 B.C. in Jerusalem and taken over to Babylon. Their king, Jehoiakim, first succumbs to Egypt, succumbed to Egypt's king, Pharaoh Necho, uh, or Necho. Um, and so this happens uh, 
Um, right after the 605 BC, he's kind of the, he becomes the king. Of course, at the time it was King Josiah. He was their great king, and Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho, same Pharaoh, uh, on their way up to Carchemish. Uh, Pharaoh Necho, knowing that Josiah, their king, is dead, has put another king in place. Anyone remember his name? His name was Jehoahaz. See, that was on the end of your tongue, right? Remember, we went through this a year and a half ago. Shame on all of you. Jehoahaz takes him off to Egypt, and he puts Jehoiakim in, in, in power. He's a puppet, a vassal in Israel. Uh, he was with Pharaoh Necho, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes along, the Babylonians. And he takes Jehoiakim, and then he takes Jehoiakim captive, and then he kills Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. Actually, he doesn't kill Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim just dies, and Jehoiachin, his son, becomes the vassal king. He's later taken off captive to Babylon. And so now Nebuchadnezzar has the king of Israel. So if Israel wants to have any peace at all under the domination of the Babylonian empire, they're going to play nice. Their king is there, Jehoiakim. Well, their puppet king is now Zedekiah, who is a son of Josiah, one of the great kings, but his son wasn't so great. Zedekiah was a vassal of Babylon, but after 11 years, he said, I'm done with Babylon. I'm going to do things my way. And that didn't work out so well. Remember what they did to his boys? They slaughtered his boys right before his eyes and then poked his eyes out. It was the last thing he ever saw. They knew what they were doing. Going to captivity in Babylon in 586 B.C., the land of Israel and her worship of Yahweh ended. So from 1446 B.C., coming out of Egypt, 1406, going into the land, to 1399, establishing in the land, to the great king Saul, David, and Solomon, and the prophets that called them to repentance over and over. Now in 586 B.C., you see Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations walking around the city, kicking the shards in what's left of the city in the burned ashes, lamenting. Here's what's happened to the great city of Jerusalem. He and some of the poorest people of the land were left and remained in Israel. In fact, Jeremiah knew Nebuchadnezzar and the, the great generals of Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, look, you can either come with us or you can stay here. Jeremiah said, I'll stay here. Okay, fine, stay here. So he did. So they go into exile. And they're in exile until 539 B.C. when the Persians come along and defeat the Babylonians. Some people from the tribes in the north had matriculated into the south. So all 12 tribes were preserved in captivity. Uh, by 539, the ruling empire was no longer Babylon, but Medo-Persia. Medo meaning the Medes, the kingdom of Media, and the kingdom of Persia had come together for the Medo-Persian empire. And they reigned on the earth as the great empire from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. Israel, the land of Israel, is now vacated. The poorest are there, and whoever is there of, of any significance is under the domination of another empire, the Persians at this point. By 537 B.C. or 539, when it was decreed that Israel could go home, remember the Babylonians brought people over into their land. We want you here. The Persians said, go home. You'll be under our domination, but go back to your homeland. 50,000 Jews returned. We learned that from Ezra chapter 1. They returned from Babylon. And there were far more Jews living in Babylon after 70 years than 50,000. Many knew nothing but Babylon. It'd be like... Uh, us growing up in the United States and then some coming, hey, you need to go back to your homeland. I think I'm Scottish. I think. Uh, people go back to your homeland. Oh, great. Get to go back to Scotland. I have no idea what's in Scotland other than the pictures I've seen and John Knox. Uh, and I'm not a Presbyterian. So, eh, I'm probably not going. No, no doubt it was the same thing with these Israelites. We don't know our homeland. We're from Babylon. 
So only 50,000 return, and they're still under Persian domination. Their leader was Zerubbabel. Keep saying that over and over. It's a good word. And he completed the construction of the new temple in 516 B.C. But he didn't just come back and start building it. People still weren't really changed, were they? They came back in five, around 538, 537 B.C., and God had to send them a couple of prophets and say, hey, what's your problem? Look at the, the, the temple. It's a wreck, but your houses sure look good. Where's your priorities? Haggai says what? Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. So the prophets Haggai and Zechariah preached. And the interesting thing about Haggai and Zechariah, they're very unique in the Bible. People listen to them. They're the only ones that anyone ever listened to. Haggai said, get your act together, start building the temple, and they did. You won't see that in any of the prophets, really. So they returned around 537 B.C. There were other returns. The scribe and priest Ezra came to Israel from Babylon in 458 B.C. We learn about that in Ezra 7-8. To minister to the returned exiles, preaching Scripture and teaching Israel to obey Scripture. That's who Ezra was. He was a scribe, a preacher, a priest, and he came to tell people, here's what God's Word says, here's what you do with it. Expository preacher. By 444 B.C., a few years later, but what is that, 14 years later, Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the Persian king, Artaxerxes, returned to Israel to rebuild the city and her walls. So Ezra was there preaching, bringing about this uh, um, spiritual return to Yahweh, and Nehemiah comes and says, let's rebuild the city, and he builds the wall. That's what Nehemiah is about. Miraculously gets that wall built. Malachi was Israel's last prophet until John the Baptist. Uh, So it's about 400 plus years uh, from Malachi to John the Baptist. Malachi corrected more of Israel's sins and warned about the sudden coming of the Lord, which when John the Baptist appeared on the scene, said, I am the one who goes before the Messiah. There he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the intertestamental period. How many of you are really sharp with the intertestamental period? If you grew up Catholic and you were a good Catholic and you read your Apocrypha, like 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees, you know something about it. Um, but uh, it's good reading. It's really good reading, um, especially the First and Second Maccabees. So I'm going to run through this. So we have uh, Malachi to the birth of Jesus, about 430 B.C. And yes, Jesus was born four years before Christ. In the genealogy, he was. Um, sixth century uh, uh, they did a great job in the 6th century, around 525 A.D., of uh, doing dating, but uh, they missed it by about four to six years. So uh, that's why Jesus was born four years before he was born. These are commonly known as the silent years because we don't have them in our Bible. Catholic Bible does because they have the Apocrypha. During this time, Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire uh, because we left with Persia in control. Alexander conquers the, the city of Tyre on July 29, 332 B.C. after a seven-month siege. We looked at that back when we were in Ezekiel. Uh, this was an amazing uh, task because Tyre moved from the mainland out to an island. And so Alexander the Great took all the rubble from the mainland, threw it out and made a causeway, got out to him and defeated him. In fact, that causeway is still there today. I used to have a satellite picture of it, but I've covered it over tonight. Didn't want to go into it too much. Uh, So he conquered Tyre. This man was unstoppable. Uh, Alexander at Jerusalem. When he comes back through Jerusalem, uh, he could have easily conquered Jerusalem. But something amazing happened. Josephus writes, he's a Jewish historian. He said, and when the book of Daniel was showed to Alexander, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. And he was then glad. 
And he wasn't just trying to appease him. Alexander is absolutely prophesied in Daniel's prophecy. You can't miss it in chapter 11. He is the one. And Daniel showed him this, or, or the, the prophets did. They showed him, or Daniel was already dead, but the prophets there at the time, here's Daniel's prophecy. And so he was easy on Jerusalem. Okay, these people are prophesied about me. This is what's going on in the land. He could have conquered it, could have been a Greek state, but he left it. Alexander's world, there was a culture, in, cultural interchange from east to west. The world began to change under him. There was learning, science, Hellenization, which is the Greek culture, uh, coming upon non-Greek cultures, the language, their way of life. Uh, and then Alexander's uh, very early death in, 320, in June of 323, 323 B.C. I think he was 33, 34 years old. Um, various accounts of how he died, ones that he died in his vomit uh, after getting drunk, uh, others that it wasn't that, something else, but uh, an interesting story. He was a flash, but he was an amazing conqueror. And so the four powers... Uh, that, that emerge after Alexander dies were from his four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Antigenus, and Ptolemy. Antigenus will be uh, erased and put up by a man named Seleucus, who becomes that fourth empire. And the Seleucids, the, the Seleucians and the Ptolemies in Egypt, Seleucans in Syria, will be the dominating world empires at this point. Now, notice the land in between Syria and Egypt. It's Israel, called the Levant, and that is where their battlefields are. These two nations will battle each other on that field. All of this is prophesied. When you go through the book of Daniel, chapter 11, your mind is blown. All of this is predicted by Daniel in 550 B.C., and it begins to unfold in the 330s B.C., 200 years later. That's why liberals today hate the book of Daniel and say it can't be. That book was written after these events happened because there's no way you can predict that it did happen. But a strange thing happened. You see, the book of Daniel was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. How about that? Which predate? Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who is important. He's the one that put together the, uh, or at least called for a, uh, the Septuagint. Uh, Pharaoh's Lighthouse is what it was called. This library in Alexandria was under Ptolemy II. Uh, he instigated the putting together of the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we still have that today. Uh, and then with the war with the Seleucids, that's those in the north in Syria. One of those leaders in the north uh, of the Seleucids uh, was named Antiochus. Back and forth, you'll read these people. If you read their history, one's called a Seleucid, one's called Antiochus. Antiochus 1, Antiochus 2, Antiochus 3, Antiochus 4, Seleucid 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. Uh, and some of them have surnames. Antiochus III was known as the Great. Here's a picture of his mug here. Uh, and uh, they were, he was also trying to take, and he was a great ruler. Uh, great in the, in the sense that he was mighty. Um, and his, uh, but what followed him was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he was a mess. Uh, Epiphanes means the illustrious one. Uh, and his enemies called him Epimenes, the madman. Just one letter change. Uh, he was once a hostage in Rome. He really wasn't designated for the throne. He got it by intrigue. He escaped from Rome. He had a campaign against Egypt from where he came and uh, the first revolt in Judah. Now, this guy is, it's amazing to read him because he is the Antichrist of the Old Testament. The Antichrist of anything that predates the New Testament. And I mean, if you can find someone worse on the planet that's ever lived, you won't. 
Uh, he hated the Jews. Uh, when he would go down south and fight with the Ptolemies in Egypt, uh, there was one, on one particular occasion around 170 uh, B.C. where he was, uh, it was thought he went down to Egypt and the Jews were said he died in battle. And they rejoiced. And they started making arrangements, blah, blah, blah. Well, when he came back and found out they rejoiced, he completely sacked their land. He came in at one point in one of his rages and he sacrificed a pig and boiled the innards of the pig into a broth and threw it all over their temple. A pig, swine in their temple, unclean animal with its blood, with its innards, throwing it all over the temple. Uh, And so you have this revolt in Judah. You've got the other story during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes where a woman with seven sons uh, came forward. You may have heard this story before. It's in 2 Maccabees. And uh, he, they are told to submit to the king. And she said, none of my sons and myself will not do it. So he fries one in a frying pan for the mama. He takes another one, cuts his skin, and peels the skin off called flaying him. Peels him off while he's alive, kills him. Each son down to the seventh one, the mom told the seventh son, do not embarrass me by giving in to the king. He died too. She later died. Every one of them refusing to bow before this madman king. And it's interesting because Daniel, see if you can get your dates, see if you're still with me at 740 after a long day. Daniel wrote in 550 BC about something called the abomination of desolation. Talking about what would come and what would happen to the temple. This guy fulfilled that prophecy. He comes in and fulfills the abomination of desolation. But what's even more interesting is that that happened in 167 BC. Jesus talks 170 years later about the abomination of desolation that's coming. People would scratch their head and say, wait a minute, that happened 150 years ago, Jesus. No, it did. But that's just a precursor to what is coming in the future temple. So Antiochus Epiphanes pre, is kind of the, the pre-Antichrist of what we will see or what will be seen um, in Israel that's coming. Anyway, he dies of rottenness. Uh, he goes down to Persia to get more money. He's, uh, they're bankrupt. He's trying to beat the, the Jews who have come up against him. And uh, uh, he dies, uh, Josephus says, of the most rotten, putrefying disease. And he died basically of the smell of his own body. Some rottenness disease ate him away. Good riddance, right? His regulations, the Jews could not assemble for prayer. Uh, the observance of the Sabbath was forbidden. Possession of all the scriptures was illegal. Circumcision was illegal. Dietary laws were made illegal. There were some in Israel that said, great, let's just give in and let's just become Greek like he is. We'll just make this part of our, our world Greek. We'll quit fighting against him and go with him. What do you say about people like that? There were others that said, we won't. I told you about a couple of them. Pagan sacrifices were mandated for Jews. Antiochus IV, you ever hear the Maccabees from the Hasmonean dynasty? 167 B.C. under their daddy named Mattathias. Uh, they liberate the temple. If you've heard of Hanukkah, you know something about it. Mattathias came in and he would not succumb. He, you remember Phineas from the book of Numbers? What did Phineas do? Two people right in front of the high priest and, the, and Joshua came in and they went into the tent and began to have uh, illicit sex. Phineas goes in with a spear, stabs them both. Spear runs through both of them. His zeal for the Lord got exalted. Well, Mattathias was the same guy, except later on. Um, Because when people started to offer their sacrifices to these gods, Mattathias came in and killed them. Ran off into the hills with his sons and created a rebellion in Israel that hasn't been seen since. 
Uh, these people were zealous for Israel. He had a son. One of his sons was named Judas. And they called him the hammer, hence the Maccabee. He was the hammer and he came in and they were thorns, to say the least, they were thorns in the side of the Antiochian kings, especially Antiochus IV. At some point, they retook the temple. They completely rebuilt the altar because it was worthless at this point uh, and purified it. And over the course of 12 days until the oil burned out, they purified the temple, hence the 12 days of Hanukkah. So the Hasmonean kings are, are the same as the Maccabean kings. Maccabean Rebellion in 167 BC, you see that up top. Ptolemies and Seleucids there at the bottom. Rome overlaps it because they're going to come in. Uh, in other words, Israel had about 100 years of independence uh, after the Maccabees came in and took over. So here's their family line. Mattathias had five sons, uh, John or Johanan, Simon, Judas, Eleazar, and Jonathan. Eleazar went into battle, and he thought he was going to uh, uh, kill the king of the next, uh, the next part of the Greeks, and they were riding on of the next, I should say, the next phase of the Greek empire. And he thought the king was riding on one of the elephants. So he went in under the elephant, cut out the innards of the elephant, elephant fell out on him, he died under the elephant. How about that? The really bad part is he didn't get the king. It was the wrong person on the elephant. <laughs> but it's a great story. Um, Simon becomes the new leader after Judas's death. In fact, Mattathias had designated his son Judas to be uh, the, the, the king in his death. When he died, territory of Judah uh, was recognized as a free state in 142 B.C. The high priest uh, came up for the highest bidder. In fact, these people took over the priesthood. Uh, later on, it came up to the highest bidder. And so from Simon, you've got uh, John Hyrcanus, uh, and then another Judah, and another Mattathias. Uh, John Hyrcanus became the leader. So that's Mattathias to Judas to Simon to John Hyrcanus. Uh, if you read the inter intertestamental period, you're going to come across these names. They're great names, and they're great stories. I'm just breezing through them to show us the history of Israel in that intertestamental period. I hope you're not too bored yet. Samaria, Galilee, and Idumea, that's Edom, were conquered, uh, and there were forced conversions of conquered peoples. Um, out of this emerged two parties that we're very familiar with in our New Testament, Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Hasidim, or the pious ones, were the Pharisees and the Hellenists who were under the Greek influence of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were very wicked people. That They were... Uh, extremely traitorous to Israel. They were Israelites who wanted Israel to be Greek. They were the ones that wanted to just give in. Uh, and they have come down through time and even into Jesus' day. In fact, uh, this, the leader of the Sadducees at the time was a man named Annas. Remember Annas, the first one Jesus was taken to? He was the crime boss. Uh, he, he was like the, the godfather in that day. And so he passes him off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, who pronounces Jesus guilty in their kangaroo court. Uh, but these are the parties that emerged from the Hasmonean days. And so from John Hyrcanus, you've got uh, Aristobulus and Salome of Alexand and Alexandria, uh, and uh, Alexander, Janaeus, and then a few more, Hyrcanus II, Aristobulus II. Uh, it's neither here nor there. It's just these are the rulers that come through, and they are from Mattathias. They are from a very pious group of Jews who are trying to keep Israel pure and separate during those, during those intertestamental years before John the Baptist shows up on the scene. At the end of their reign was Pompey the Great, the Roman general um, who had conquered Syria, Armenia, and others, and he took Jerusalem in 63 BC. And so that 100 years or so that the Hasmoneans had ruled independently and Judah was back in their own, their own land doing their own thing was taken over by the Romans in 63 BC under Pompey. 
Israel was controlled by client kings at the time of the Hasmonean dynasty and given limited religious and political freedom. So they, weren't, they were no longer uh, independent. And then you've got the civil war between Julius Caesar and uh, Pompey. Uh, we know that uh, Caesar took over from there. Antipater, uh, if you know who Antipater is, you'll f come across a couple of different people named Antipater. This particular Antipater is the father of Herod the Great. Uh, and he is jockeying for, patrol, for control. Antipater is the last surviving member of the Hasmonean dynasty, and he's trying to plug his people in, his sons. Phizael was one of his sons, and Herod, who would become known as Herod the Great, was up in Galilee. Um, some amazing stories there. All of this happening, again, on the land. History of Israel up to this point. Here's a nice little smiling mug shot of our hero, King Herod the Great, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., he refurbished the Jewish temple, making it the grandest spectacle anywhere in the world at the time, which is said by people at the time. Uh, one particular gentleman said that if you haven't seen the Jewish temple in Herod's day, you haven't seen anything beautiful. And he begins to appoint Jewish high priests. Appoint them. You don't appoint Jewish high priests. They descend from the tribe of Levi through the lineage of Aaron. He appoints them. And then Jesus is born near the end of Herod's life, between 6 and 4 B.C., Here's the way Zerubbabel's temple looked. When Zerubbabel came back, remember Zerubbabel brought the people back in 539 B.C. from Babylonian exile, uh, and they rebuild the temple. People that lived prior that were old enough to remember the old temple that Solomon had built, what did they do when Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this temple? They cried. What? That's it? That's all we got? Look what was once great and grand under Solomon. This is all we have? This is what Zerubbabel built. And so you see what you're looking at, the closest one to you, see that little staircase? Uh, that's the west. The other side is the east. Um, under the Seleucid edition, you've got this. See, watch this little blue thing shows up down here on the north. Um, this is a, a Seleucid edition. It's part of the, the Greek um, attempt at converting Jews to a Greek and Hellenistic way of life. Uh, the Hasmonean expansion here. And then here's what Herod does to it. He beautifies it, stretches it out. And I want you to go back up here and see in this first one, the city of David down there on the far right, city of David. Um, notice where that comes. City of David becomes part of the temple uh, foundation here and the, what's called today the Temple Mount. Um, here you're looking at the western wall, the nearest wall to you. Go all the way down to the left. You see the Antonia Fortress, uh, and that is where the Romans lived and governed uh, the the temple there is in the middle. Um, it was uh, rebuilt, and if you go across the other side of the east, that's where the gates were. If you go all the way past the east, it's obviously not on my picture, you get to the Mount of Olives, and you stare down into the eastern gate. When Messiah returns, he will return to the Mount of Olives and walk into the east gate, which if you've been there, you've seen that the Arabs have tried to cover it up, and uh, as if the Messiah is going to come in and go, where's the door? Um, David's city today, city of David, although this picture encompasses it, uh, is still a little bit, uh, you can walk uh, as we did just back in uh, late February, early March of this year into the city of David and walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from, uh, from that location. Malachi, 430 B.C. Alexander conquers in 331, the Maccabean Rebellion in 167 B.C. Uh, here is the history of that time in the middle. The Jewish revolt. We're almost there. 
In AD 66, due to heavy taxation and persecution, the Jews revolted against Rome. Their king, who was Herod Agrippa II, now we had Herod the Great, we had Herod Antipas, we had Herod the First, Herod Agrippa the First, and now Herod Agrippa the Second. We met him back in Acts chapter 26 when we were in Acts. Their king Agrippa II unsuccessfully mediated for Israel to the Romans. Now during AD 66, there was a big, huge jockey for who was going to be the emperor, especially from 68 to 70. And the Jews apparently were trying to take advantage of this. By A.D. 70, the Roman emperor Vespasian had taken control of an unstable Rome. And he sent his son Titus as the general of the Roman army. And Titus sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Jewish historian Josephus initially fought with the rebels in Israel, but switched to Rome in Galilee up in the north and became a historian of that war. And so we know most of what we know from Josephus' writings about that war. He lived during that time. And he was, I mean, just, it's down before, before Titus made it into the city, it, what was left of the people inside the walls, they were eating each other. They were drinking urine. Uh, people, there was death everywhere. It's just what you do. You, you storm the walls, you stay outside the walls until everyone finally says, I give. The Jews didn't. Um, some fled um, until once he got in there, there were others that had fled. Um, the temple was destroyed in August of AD 70. 1,000 Jews fled to Masada. Here's Mount Masada, a good ways away. It was Herod the Great's, uh, one of Herod the Great's getaway escapes. Uh, and by three years later, by AD 73, the Romans had made their way up and into the fortress. The Romans found nearly all the Jews dead when they got there. They had chosen suicide over being captured. Um, last time I was there, Todd and I climbed up there. It took us a good while, and it's kind of a paved road. It's still a long hike up, but to get an army up there? No one really knows how they did it. And the rest of our group just took the gondola. And I know that wasn't there back in AD 70. There's no water up there. It is an amazing place. There's a lot of history. Uh, but the Jews, again, instead of being captured uh, and enslaved, uh, killed themselves. And apparently there, was a, there, was, there were a couple of survivors that told them what happened. And apparently there was a, they, they, they had murderers. One would go around and, and they would kill each other. Uh, out of a favor, and then at the end, they drew straws to see who would kill the other, and the last one would commit suicide, and so it went. And then finally, the Bar Kokhba revolt. While Hadrian was emperor of Rome, uh, the Jews were forbidden to circumcise their boys, which was the sign of the Mosaic, of the Abrahamic covenant, I should say. Uh, Hadrian, uh, around 130, AD 130, uh, as once again, like Antiochus, forbidden the Jews to be Jews. Uh, they revolted. Around 132 B.C., the Jews revolted again until A.D. 135. The rabbis proclaimed Simon Bar Kokhba, which means son of a star. They proclaimed him Israel's Messiah. He didn't make it. The Romans put down the rebellion, expelling all Jews from Israel and banning them from returning to the land. So they expunged them at A.D. 70. They made their way back in here and there now and then. And by 135, they revolted again, and then they were expelled from the land for good. Judea at that point was renamed Syro or Syrio uh, Palestine or Palestine, which comes from their enemies, the Philistines. Uh, Palestinians are not Philistines, by the way. Philistines are called fish people. They're from a different place. Um, the Arabs are, are a group of people different from the Philistines, but the Romans called them the Philistines or Palestine just because they hated them. The Romans built the temple. To, to, the, to Jupiter, which is the Roman name for the Greek god Zeus, on the Temple Mount, along with one to Venus, remember her as Aphrodite, goddess of love and beauty, on Mount Calvary. 
This is what the Romans thought of Israel, expunging them from their land. And so just a couple of thoughts on Israel. Number one, God established the people of Israel in his land under the promise given to Abraham through Isaac. And God doesn't change his mind. Israel's expulsions in the past have been based on their disobedience. This is not a people that has traditionally been obedient to God. And God has made them a, uh, a case for what he does and what he thinks of disobedience. After rejecting her Messiah, Jesus our Lord, Israel was cast out again in AD 70 and 135. Did God renege on his promise to Israel to bless her unconditionally? Or did he replace Israel with Gentile Christians? No, no. No and no. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, Paul says, they are enemies for your sake. That is, Israel are enemies for our sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So why do we stand with Israel? Because God has a promise to Israel. Not because they're good people. Not because they're, they're fine and they love the church. They hate Jesus. They literally hate Jesus. They are our enemies with respect to the gospel, Jewish unbelievers. But note this, all Israel will be saved. All of real Israel. In fact, Paul speaks in Romans 11, which is where I quote this, uh, is that there's a, a whole bunch of Israel, all y'all, I say, and y'all, right in the middle. The remnant within the whole. Yeah, the one-sixth. No. <laughs> We're not given how many are going to be saved. There, there are, those numbers do appear, but that's not how many are going to be saved. Uh, whoever it is, it is the remnant that God chose. And based upon God's choosing and God's election and his promise to Abraham, we defend Israel at all costs. Why does the world hate Israel? Ask any person who's anti-Semitic. They have no idea. The, the Jews have done nothing to anyone to make people hate them. They can be rude, but so can I. The world doesn't set out to, to hate me per se. Um, why does, ask anyone who's anti-Semitic, why? Well, I don't know. No one knows. I had a, uh, not a Greek professor, a professor at Sam Houston State, and he said, the reason the world hates, hates Jews is because they killed God. No, it's not. Uh, how do you think that went over in my class? No, it's not. They didn't, no, the world is really mad because the, the Jews killed God, right? No, that's not it at all. Um, the, the Jews are, you hear people say the Jews are taking over. The Jews are this. The Jews are brilliant people. In fact, the prophecy given to the Shemitic peoples after they came off the boat is that the Ham Hamites would serve the Shemites and Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. They're the top dog. These people are advanced. They are God's chosen people. Whether we like it or not, it doesn't matter. Did God say, well, I don't care if you like it or not. Here's what's going to happen. We stand with Israel as a result. Now, that just takes us to 135. So next time, I'll take us from 135 to 1948. Let's pray. Lord, help us to recognize that you're in charge. You always have been. 
as filthy and as horrible as it has been in, in that promised land, uh, you have never not been in control. You are the sovereign God. I pray that we would rest easy in that as we see things heat up in our own uh, part of the world and we see how your people are hated in Israel and in our own country. There's no reason for it. We pray for your justice. We want to be that persistent widow that, that prays consistently for your justice. We know that you'll bring it. We pray that you'll bring it soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 